Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Cha. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, an exactly twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, how's it going? It's all right. Thank you, Stuart. Um, it's all right. Yeah, I'm starting to get fired up. The weather is, I mean, it's still horrible. Uh, so, so mainly the introduction to our podcast is talking about how horrible the weather is. Um, so that hasn't changed, but it's because I know some things don't. But it's starting to get less horrible. And I'm getting excited about going outside again. All vaccinated. Uh, I'm ready to go and dip my toes into the water before realizing that it is too cold to be in the water. And removing my toes from the water and wondering about life choices. So I'm, I'm fired up for that season again. <laughs> yeah, that's um, basically in the Great Lakes, you know, about the end of August is when the water starts to warm up a little bit, right? So, yeah. Well, I mean, the first year I was here, so I did my postdoc at Purdue, and I remember taking my daughter on August 1st to the public pool, and the sun went behind the clouds, and it was too cold, she had to leave. Um, and that uh, that is not the way things were growing up in New Orleans, I guess we'll say. Um, it was a little bit different. Right. You know. But all this water talk brings me back to uh, our segment for today. Um, the first segment, we got to have segments. It's all segments. Segments all the way down, uh, but it's a Great Lakes factoid, so let's go with that. It's a Great Lakes factoid, a Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha! Today's Great Lakes factoid is actually not a super happy one, um, but it's topical. It certainly is not. No, it's not. Um, and uh, so that is this. I was looking up because today we're going to talk about uh, uh, drownings in the Great Lakes. I was looking up since 2010, uh, so 11 years or so, uh, there have been 962 drownings in the Great Lakes, and that includes 15 so far this year. Um, so that is about 95 a year. And that's actually basically on par with how many beach drownings there are in South Florida, where there's about a hundred, 110 a year. Um, so, uh, you know, when you think of a lot more people swimming a lot more of the year, uh, in South Florida than you do here in the Great Lakes. And so it's, uh, uh, it's a frightening, frightening statistic. Um, but that is today's Great Lakes factoid. And that actually brings us right to what we're going to talk about. So uh, today we have a guest. His name is Dr. Chris Hauser. And he recently published a paper with some colleagues on the impacts of COVID-19 on drownings in the Great Lakes. And uh, I, I found the results to be uh, uh, interesting. So I thought we'd talk to Chris. And so uh, we will play some transitional music and bring on Chris right away. <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Chris Hauser. He is the Dean of the Faculty of Science and a professor in the School of the Environment at the University of Windsor. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? Thank you very much for having me. We, we sure do appreciate it. So let's, uh, let's talk about drownings and COVID-19. So when I saw that you published a paper, my expectation was that drownings would be way down last year because people weren't vacationing. Uh, you know, when COVID started in particular, we weren't sure how safe it was to go outside or if we should at all. Uh, but but it looks like you and some colleagues did research and found that the story is more complicated, right? So how did the numbers last year compare to prior years? Well, what you had expected in terms of numbers being down because we were self-isolating in our homes was in fact true at the very beginning. So early in the season, the number of drownings was much lower than the historical averages. But then through the months of June and July, as uh, the states and the provinces began to to reopen, uh, then you started to see people escaping their homes, escaping that self-isolation fatigue. They still couldn't travel very far. And so as a result, they decided that, well, the local beach is a, is a very great spot, is a great spot to go to, 
to avoid that self-isolation. And with large cities like Chicago and Toronto, right on the Great Lakes, that's where you started to see the spikes at Southern Lake Michigan and the northern part of Lake Ontario. You start to see these spikes just as the uh, reopening start to occur. And then for Lake Huron, which is a bit more of a distance from those cities, then you start to see as uh, people are more mobile through the later part of the summer, and they finally make it up to those destination beaches, that's when they begin to spike. That's brutal. Um, So is it that people were sort of staycationing and they were just going to their local beach because that is where they could get out, do you think? Yeah, so there's there's two parts to it. One I should note is that, uh, and it's something that the uh, the Great Lakes Surf Rescue Project has really identified for the region is that there's just a lack of education as well as a lack of resources associated with uh, drownings and, and uh, drowning prevention within the Great Lakes region. Combine that with the staycations and people going to their local beach, and they may not have gone to that beach in past years, but with stores not being open, restaurants not being open, uh, you can't get to the CN Tower, you can't do a baseball game. Well, the beach becomes that that opportunity that's close to home and still within a uh, within your restricted travel area. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about the, the research you did a little bit and then and then some of the, the significance or maybe what we could do about it. So how first of all, how do you get this information? Like, how do they know? Do you were you like searching police reports or emergency response? Like how uh, how is this information collected and how do you get it? So we get, uh, there's daily news reportings whenever there is a drowning or a major rescue that occurs, but um, really that is largely tallied by the Great Lakes Surf Rescue Project, which again is this amazing organization, nonprofit, that is trying to boost education on, on beach safety across the Great Lakes region. And they keep a very detailed record, which allows us to, to make sure that we're seeing the same information, we're capturing everything. And then we sort that out through to only identify those that are associated with waves and currents. So true surf-related drownings. We don't look at the the boat-related drownings or suicides, et cetera, just there that looked like it was an emergency. And we focus on the main summer period, such as May to September, uh, within this particular study. So when you say like the Great Lakes Surf um, Rescue Project, are they looking at like news stories or are they contacting the Coast Guard? Where do they get their their numbers from? They uh, they really highlight um, all the news stories that come out from around the Great Lakes region and and truly try to, to, to demonstrate just how much drowning is an issue in, in the Great Lakes region. But by doing so, they also then keep a very detailed record of what has been going on and and those news stories then if you dive down into them you can then identify which are surf related which are boat etc and that allows us to a little bit more uh, detailed analysis and if you want to link to the uh, great lakes surf rescue project homepage, you can find it in our show notes which you can visit at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 32 that's the number three two because somehow this is episode 32 have we been getting better at collecting those data? Because one potential critique I thought of or saw about your paper is that, you know, maybe the numbers are about the same, but we just have better data now. Do you know, is, are the data getting better? Are the reports getting, you know, easier to find? Or what do you think about that? One of the problems that we have is that the Great Lakes are surrounded by several states and a province. So now you've got uh, interstate data sharing, you've got intercountry data sharing, uh, and neither country, I think, does a very good job of keeping a record of what is truly um, a drowning. And uh, you might have an incident on a beach, but is it properly recorded? And many countries around the world have this problem. I think the only country that 
uh, I, I found that had the, the best notes was actually Costa Rica. And that's because of the, the, the way that their government works and it's a national body. They actually will have a person who will identify it as being a rip current or a wave or whatever it might have been. Um, but we don't have that level of data. So it is all dependent upon what comes through in the media, what is reported. Um, but I'm confident in what they've been collecting is being fairly consistent over the last 10 years. They do an amazing job of, of really highlighting the issue. Uh, but then what we do is you start looking at it and most of the drowning patterns do relate to our weather and our water temperature. So when, we, when we've got that correlation, then we have greater confidence that the data is fairly consistent over that 10 years. And what we're seeing is usually patterns associated again with how, how, how nice is the weather and how warm is the water. And, uh, and then you can look at the deviations from that to identify uh, was COVID uh, a factor in a greater number of drownings. And so it appears then that COVID was a factor. And, and so part of it is, like you were saying, that a bunch of people showed up all at once because they didn't have anything to do. Do you feel like that was kind of the main driver in the increase in drownings? Or were there specific kind of weather factors that contributed as well? Overall, um, the number of drownings, surf-related drownings in 2020, uh, between May and September, were about 29 above historical averages. But when you then compare it to what could have been weather related, so again, we had really nice weather and we had warm water. Uh, so when you bring that into as a factor, uh, we were, were more confident in saying that about 20 extra drownings occurred last year because of COVID versus what would have been expected during from weather and uh, uh, from the historical averages. So we do see a, a big jump. Now, again, Part of that is that greater number of people going to their local beach, but also it's also because of that education piece. If you've got more people who are doing the staycations and don't have experience and don't have knowledge of beach safety, well, now you're putting a, you're, you're having a greater at-risk population onto that beach. Uh, but at the same time, we had uh, in some places a lack of lifeguard resources. Uh, the decision that uh, it was a COVID year, beaches were closed, maybe we're not going to hire in this particular year. Or in some cases, lifeguards became the COVID police to, to more focus on self-isolation and, and group gatherings rather than what was happening in the water. Lifeguards are the main reason why, in fact, beaches can be, are safe. You, and in fact, very, little drown, very few drownings ever occur in the United States where there is a lifeguard on that beach at that time. You start to take away that resource, you start to redirect that resource on top of the education, on top of the staycation. And then to add to it all, and it was a fairly minor, but it just couldn't add, come at a worse time, is you've got the highest water levels in decades. And so as a result, you've got narrower beaches, people are spreading out, plus you've got self-isolation where you want to actually spread out, social distancing, I mean. And uh, so now you're spreading out over a larger area of beach, you're on your staycation, all these factors start to combine and you just need one bad weather day with a lot of people at the at the water and uh, you've created a dangerous situation. Right. And then, you know, in the Great Lakes. So I, I know some people think that, you know, the Great Lakes aren't that, that, you know, they're not that dangerous as compared to an ocean, for example. But I know on the days when there are the huge waves, people want to go out and jump in them because it seems fun. But it's also really hairy because of the um, the bathymetry, right, in some places? That's right. So you've got a combination of the, the bathymetry. There are some beaches around the uh, the Great Lakes. 
that through the summer go into that transverse bar and rip type morphology in which you've got rip channels just sitting there that are waiting to be activated when the waves pick up and begin to break across the bar. But at the same time, you've also got a lot of hardened structures that uh, both in terms of uh, the, the bedrock, but also in terms of man-made objects that uh, groins and jetties that create that natural deflection and force a rip current in a particular location. And they could be pretty calm in the morning when you get out there and the water is relatively calm. But by later in the afternoon, the, wa the waves start to pick up. Now what had been safe is now actually in dangerous. And also, if you had gone to the beach yesterday and it was calm, but today it's waving, you're, waving, you're actually going to base your assumption on the water based upon yesterday, not on a fresh new interpretation. And again, if you have a lot of people who are going to the beach and there is one person in that water, regardless of the sign, regardless of the flag, regardless of what has been warned by um, the weather service, if there's somebody in the water and they're not drowning, that gives you that self, that confidence. Hey, if they're not drowning, I won't drown. And in fact, we have, we have a number of studies that demonstrate uh, the confirmation bias that people use when making a decision about beach safety. And in fact, at, at Pensacola Beach in, in Florida, we're able to show that if a person's perception of the water did not match that of the lifeguard who has a knowledge of that beach, who knows when the rips would form, the lifeguard would put up a yellow flag, but the person didn't believe it. And there were other people in the water. They assumed the lifeguard was just being overly cautious. That is the day when you've got the majority of rescues and drownings. And we're able to show that in Pensacola, the majority of those incidents, rescues and drownings, over a, a large number of years was actually associated with the day when people and the weather forecast and the lifeguards were all out of sync with each other in the way in which they perceived the water. So you start adding these, these layers on top of each other, um, you've got a, you've got the bathymetry that's in the right spot. You then got um, the wave conditions. Then you've got the people and the lack of education. The whole thing becomes that perfect storm. Yeesh. Yeah, that is rough. <laughs> um, and and I can see how COVID really contributed to just on top of. But I mean, all these factors are there most years, right? It's not just a COVID story. COVID seems to have made it worse for all the reasons you talked about with people spreading out, uh, trying to cram it all into one spot, maybe being some less experienced beachgoers, perhaps uh, going. But, but yeah. this is an every year story to some extent, right? That's correct. And so um, I think this year, what's made it worse is the fact that we were self-isolated, that we were forced to stay in our homes. We, are, we were forced to wear a mask. You're forced to do something. And, that, and, and, and we needed to do that for the pandemic. But now when you get to that beach and you've, you've sunk the cost into the time and the energy to get to that beach and you've been, you've been, you've been held back, well, that it provides that next psychological piece, which is um, I'm going to get into that water. And uh, that's where particularly when you get destination beaches. So people driving from Toronto up to Wasega Beach, et cetera, they've driven two hours in Russia in, in cottage country traffic. Um, they've sunk that cost into going up there. The sunk cost fallacy. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so as a result, they want to, to get into that water at all cost. And um, even if there were conditions are rough, you're going to get in. And so you add all these, again, these layers. And I think just the uh, the, the self-isolation and the, the, the restrictions that we had played into that at that moment of freedom. 
So I want to call out two things. Number one, um, we will also put a link to the the publication, the paper into our show notes and a couple of the other publications that um, Dr. Hauser's talking about. The second, um, I've got to say, I think it's a little bit funny that you just said rush hour traffic and then instantly replaced it with cottage country traffic because they are both frustrating, but like <laughs> they can be, it seems like they are worlds apart, but you can wind up in the city. What is, what is, I don't know cottage country. I think of most of Canada is cottage country, but is that like, is that like everybody trying to hit the slopes or whatever on the weekend and you get caught in? It, it's that same kind of concept. So, uh, a large part of Toronto and southwestern Ontario has a cottage in northern Ontario, maybe only about an hour, an hour and a half away in Huntsville, Perry Sound region on Georgian Bay. And uh, you get there on a Friday night and uh, it can be just uh, it can be worse than c- going into Toronto on a rush hour. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Same if you're going like up I-75 into the Upper Peninsula on a weekend. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. One thing you mentioned was um, a lack of resources contributed to this. Like what kind of and so you said lifeguards. Are there like resources that you feel like we need more of to help make the Great Lakes safer? Um, and and it's really complicated, though, because like you said, there's a, a handful of states and a whole other country involved. Uh, so that's a challenge. But what kind of resources do you think are most desperately needed? It, it varies considerably by by county and by district uh, based upon what resources they put into it. There are many beaches in Ontario that are our destination beaches that do not have lifeguards and they have not put that they've not um, funded lifeguards. They don't actually have a lot of signs or flags to warn people on, on those on the situation. Um, at the same time, you have just a broad lack of education within the, the broader Great Lakes region, which is, again, that's the, what the Great Lakes Surf um, Rescue Project has been doing an amazing job of trying to say, hey, we need to do more to educate the public and particularly uh, kids on beach safety. And so we, you, you have that lack of education, the lack of lifeguard resources, and really no consistent public safety strategy, except for maybe just putting up a sign and saying conditions may be uh, rough. Well, if the conditions are rough right now, I've already ignored that sign. I've already discounted it. And so we, we there are some resources that are put in, but they're discounted resources. And we need to think about um, uh, how do you actually get in and make that investment? And so one of the studies that we have ongoing right now with a series of econo- economists is uh, actually looking at what is the financial cost of drowning in the Great Lakes region uh, in terms of what that person individually, in terms of salaries and taxes, would be contributing to the economy. Uh, and it, it, it's the, the preliminary numbers already look like uh, just for 2020 alone, it's fairly substantial. So even forgetting like the any moral or ethical obligation, there might be a financial uh, reason to do this. That's exactly it. You mentioned, um, you know, putting lifeguards in communities and stuff like that. Is the do, are there any particular um, programs that you can recommend, like say even for the Greater Toronto Area or things like that, where people can go and learn a little bit more about um, be, like beach safety or um, particularly uh, or where to swim or things like that? There's there's not a lot of good resources that way, and again, it's down down to the almost to the the municipal level at that point. Here are the beaches with lifeguards, but there's nothing that is. I'll use Ontario. There's nothing province wide that says these beaches have lifeguards. These beaches are ones uh, where we've got these extra resources, and and I think that is something that is missing, not only uh, 
uh, in Ontario, but across the Great Lakes region. How do you direct people to those beaches where we've got the sufficient resources? How do you redirect people from a beach that might be having a southwest wave and that's generating the the rip off the, the groin or the jetty to a beach that is probably a little bit safer at that moment? We've got nothing like that in terms of a strategy regionally, and it's something I think we should be working towards. And um, one last question. Are you concerned? So Ontario is currently in a stay-at-home order right now, again, right? And the various other Great Lakes states, they're in various stages of reopening. Everyone's trying to get vaccinated by July 4th. Um, Do you anticipate that there may be issues this year as well um, in the same kind of way? So you're actually, it's a very interesting question that way, because it's very difficult to control the situation, to know what would a vaccination program might have had in terms of things. So this year, I think we do have that opportunity. The United States is far ahead in terms of the vaccination rate. It's far ahead in releasing um, some of the restrictions. People are traveling more. And uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see whether or not we see a shift in terms of the way that the pattern of drownings that happens on the, the U.S. side versus the Canadian side once we we, we scale it for just the difference in the population and, and the way the beaches are uh, historically. But we did see something last year that was quite interesting. So Prince Edward Island uh, is a, a destination tourist place in, in Canada in the Maritimes. And typically, it's got a couple of drownings every year associated with tourists. Last year, because they went into complete lockdown, they were in what's called the maritime bubble. And it was only maritimers who were actually going to their own beaches. And they had zero drownings last year. So that lack of knowledge, not the lack of knowledge, the the better knowledge of the beach safety issue, because people grew up around the water, the lack of tourists meant that they had zero drowning. So what we're hoping to look at this year, and, and it's unfortunate that we again have to look at it in this way, is that um, how did the continued lockdown in Ontario, and whenever that lifts, how does that affect the drownings and, and beach use relative to the United States where those restrictions were released earlier? And based upon what we're talking about here and, and the greater freedom that you have to move around right now, you might actually see a slight decrease from what you'd expect in the United States because people can travel to wherever they were planning to go. So maybe I should just say, I actually don't know. (laughs) That's where, where it's one of the things that we want to look at this year. An unfortunate natural experiment that you've got set up, I suppose, um, to see. Exactly. But what's interesting about this, so I'm a social scientist when I'm not moving paper and hosting podcasts. And so one thing we always like to talk about is that, you know, information is never sufficient, right? Or knowledge is never sufficient. But this is actually a really good instance of where information and knowledge can make a big difference. It's when it's, you know, procedural knowledge or kind of safety related knowledge. Like that's really important to get to people uh, and a really important uh component, I guess, of behavior change. And, and so hearing you say that is uh, both disheartening in the sense that there's a lot of work to do, but heartening in that there are steps we can take. Now, once that knowledge is out there, then then the hard, then the really hard work begins, I think. But but uh, that's good to hear. Well, Chris, this is all really interesting. Um, but that's actually not the reason why we invited you on uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask these two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, uh, which would you choose? It depends upon where I am living. If if I was living back in Texas, oh, I'd be at Shipley's Donuts on a Saturday <laughs> morning. 
Uh, but not actually, yeah, but not actually being there and being back in Ontario, uh, I would go for the uh, the sandwich. I, I would go for just a great Reuben or a muffaletta. Great Reuben or a muffaletta. Second muffaletta in, in a year. <laughs> Actually, the last one was the last muffaletta. No, we're talking about diving. I thought maybe there was something about water safety at muffalettas, but no. Uh, that's great. I can highly recommend Shipley's um, as someone who lived in Texas for quite some time and in northern Louisiana, and uh, I can highly recommend muffaletta. So is there a place when we're in Windsor visiting you or, or whatever where we should go to get a good Reuben or a muffaletta or any other kind of sandwich? No, I don't think it's, it's necessarily in Windsor. Windsor's got some amazing food, a very diverse food culture, but... Um, I'm just thinking in general, if I had to get a sandwich <laughs> in general, I'd get that. Yep. Uh, and the second question is this. So we, we talked to faculty members a lot, but, but you're a, a faculty member in addition to like a dean of the faculty of science. That's a little different for us. What is it that makes you good at that? Like, what are some key skills for being a, a dean of the faculty of science? Uh, I, I think the main one is, is that despite the fact that I'm in an administrative position, I'm a faculty member first. I still maintain an active research program. Part of it's associated with uh, beach safety, but a large part of it is actually looking at uh, the impact of large storms, hurricanes, et cetera, on, on barrier islands and the exchange of sand amongst the nearshore beach and dune. So I'm a faculty member first, and I do the research there and keep that program going. I also still teach. And in fact, I do a lot of my teaching well, before COVID in study abroad. So I've actually done 40 trips with students uh, to Costa Rica into the jungle with the, with machetes on our hips and deep into um, jungle environment. Uh, and been doing that both at Windsor and uh, my former institution in Texas. And uh, uh, I love that piece. So there's, there's that sense that you're grounded. You know what the, all the faculty are, are going through. But I think the other part is that I'm a broadly trained uh, geographer or, or geologist. And uh, I work with everybody from deep rock uh, geologists and geophysicists to oceanographers to economists and psychologists. And having that ability and to, to talk to those people from very different fields makes a world of difference in, in thinking through problems um, from very different perspectives. And I, we've part of that has allowed us to, to really make an impact in terms of uh, recruitment and enrollment and as well as uh, nearly doubling our research at the University of Windsor in just five years. And it, it's simply by engaging faculty in a very different way. Well, Chris Hauser, where can people go to find out more about your research or the work that you do? Are there websites you want us to point to or uh, social media feeds? What's the best way to go? Uh, so I maintain an active uh, uh, Twitter feed um, at hauser.chris.a, uh, as well as uh, U Windsor Coastal Research Group at the University of Windsor. And uh, be happy to have that shared. Yeah, great. So look for links to those in our show notes at uh, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 32. Because, again, this is episode 32. Well, Dr. Chris Hauser, Dean of the Faculty of Science, uh, Professor of the School of Environment at the University of Windsor, thank you for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you. That was interesting to, re to see the work that Chris and his colleagues have done on that and kind of a really neat applied – well, neat. I feel weird getting excited about kind of the research they did and how important it is, but the seriousness of the subject matter. So that's just, it's a challenge. Um, but, but to see the work that they've done and, and uh, how they're able to use, you know, different modeling techniques to uh, try to help drive policy, I think is, is really good. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm consistently struck by the social norms. I mean, I know social scientists, everybody's always like, but I mean, the thought that, 
the lifeguard is telling you it's not safe to go out, but it was safe yesterday. So you're going to go in or, you know, you see someone else out there and they're not drowning. Like humans are so, so interesting, but I think it's really important to understand those types of things so that maybe there can be better messaging or different approaches because yeah, I mean, uh, it's no joke. Like the, the number of times that I've sort of heard people through my life be like, Oh, it's just the great lakes. It's just the great lakes. And they are extraordinarily dangerous, particularly, you know, for people who didn't grow up there, but then, you know, in Chicago, um, people are getting swept off piers and it's really scary. So, I mean, I really do hope that there can be better messaging to help. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of work to be done there. And we're doing a lot of work, of course, at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant about that. Um, but, but you know, and, and, and as is the Surf Rescue Project and a lot of other people and a lot of other Sea Grant programs, but it, there's a ton to be done. Right. And we can drop, sorry, we can drop a couple of links for like the South uh, Southwestern Lake Michigan Water Safety Consortium. There's a couple of Great Lakes Water Safety Consor- yeah. Consortiums yeah. that we can share too. Yeah, we'll have all those links in the show notes. And then, but one thing that that shows though with the, how how susceptible people are to normative power or normative influence is like, it's very easy to get into like a blame culture with this stuff um, because you see people doing things that are, you know, kind of dumb. Right. Um, but, but there's just really strong and, uh, without going into too many details, that will get me fired or in trouble. Like, I think when you're looking broadly with things related to safety that have happened in the last year, there's a lot of normative pressure and it's really easy to think, Oh, you should just be logical, but people aren't logical. Even scientists aren't logical outside of the context of their science and sometimes inside the context of their science. Um, and, and so it's just, it's hard. Uh, and it, it, I mean, not to shoot our own horn, but it makes the work we do at Sea Grant, like it really underscores the import of it, I think. Right. And we should say again, just for the, um, you know, the flip, float, follow. If you get caught in a rip current, um, try to remember that flip, float, follow and just let it let it take you back to shore. Hopefully it'll be OK. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we have a, a handful of tips. You can go check those out at the um, episode we did with Meg Dodson of the National Weather Service. Uh, that's Teach Me Got Their Great Lakes episode 17. So just uh, go check that out if you haven't already. And it's uh, it's a fun listen because Meg is a blast. But uh, yeah, she gives a lot of good safety tips and talks about the, the work that we're doing. All right. You have some announcements. I have some announcements. I do. Uh, the first one, Teach Me About the Great Lakes Book Club. We are going to be reading and discussing Dan Egan's death and life of the Great Lakes this summer. Um, it's kind of a modern classic of the Great Lakes, or at least so I'm told. Uh, so if you want to participate in that, we're going to take listener calls and comments as part of our discussion. Uh, so if you want to participate in that, start reading it now. I don't know exactly when that's going to be scheduled for. It depends on uh, some stuff. But later this summer, probably July or August, somewhere in there. Would that be your guess? Yeah, I would guess so. Like, I would guess August, September. Yep. August, September. So by November to December, uh, we'll be discussing it. But, <laughs> but if Sometime you want, this year. Yeah, if you want to enter library or if you want to get it through the library or whatever, you know, it's time to start putting in for it now uh, to read about it. Because, yeah, we, we'd be interested to get comments from listeners on that and then uh, we have our second annual recording from the uh, international association of great lakes research iagler conference we are lucky to be interviewing their uh, uh, lifetime achievement award winner again last year that was a whole lot of fun and it'll be fun this year keep your eye on the social media feed if that hasn't already happened we may do it live we may not there's details it's all details um, but look forward to that. So, uh, we love, we love our folks at or our friends at, uh, Iagler and we love the Viagler conference. So that's good. Teach me about the great lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and also at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and probably some other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunnery Miles. Ethan Shitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. (laughs) 
Yes, and the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose. You should check her out at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes because these are great lakes. Uh, thanks for listening, and of course, keep great in those lakes. <laughs>